0: You know, you want to try to make a difference in the world, but I've sort of started to realize that the best thing I can do is just try to maybe cut down what the world is to me a little bit.
1: Hello the internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and also absolutely not gonna be your beast of burden, which is appropriate uh, because, or inappropriate as the case may be, because we're talking Rolling Stones uh, this episode. Um, I had a conversation with a guy named Clint Carroll. Clint is best known as the host of a Hulk Hogan podcast called "What You Gonna Do," uh, which covers the entire career of Hulk Hogan, except for the wrestling part. Uh, it's an utterly fascinating endeavor. Uh, I hope you, I uh, hope you'll check it out after this. Um, but that's not what I talked to him about. I talked to him about the Stones. Uh, We talked about Exile on Main Street, widely considered to be one of the greatest Stones albums, but he did not like it the first time he listened to it. Um, And he continued to hate it until it got stuck in his car's CD player and he literally could not listen to anything else. So it's a fascinating story. Uh, I think you're gonna like it. This will be a fun one. I'm gonna flip you over to our conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Clint, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, Luke. I appreciate you having me. Clint is known far and wide as the host of What You Gonna Do, the Hulk Hogan movie podcast, and... It is exactly what you're expecting based on that title. I I beg
0: to differ. It may be even dumber than what they're expecting based on that title.
1: <laughs> right on, right on. What else? What am I leaving out? Do you do anything else or are you just
0: uh, Well, okay. I started uh during the pandemic. Um well, okay, I'll tell you this. I was doing some a bunch of stand-up comedy uh, right pre-pandemic and was actually starting to make a little bit of progress there was You know, like actually getting paid money to tell dumb jokes and I had just booked like a weekend actually out of town at a club in Arkansas where I was going to be fed (laughs) and put up and all of that to work as a comedian. And it seemed like a huge step. And then the pandemic happened. And uh, I think that's over. So I just uh, sort of fell out of the stand up scene altogether. I've only done a couple of shows in the last two years. Needed a new creative outlet besides my podcast. So I started writing for a website occasionally that's called MavsMoneyBall.com, which is a Dallas Mavericks-related fan site uh, associated with Super Bowl Nation. If people are like, this guy is just the most fascinating guy I've ever ever heard, I wonder what he has to say about the Dallas Mavericks. That's where they would want to go.
1: Yeah, man, that's rough. I can't imagine like being in showbiz and thinking your career is finally taking off and then having COVID just destroy it.
0: Well, you know, saying, calling what I was doing, uh, being in showbiz is very generous. I appreciate it. But, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was something I'd never really thought about doing. And then actually through the podcast, I met some stand-up comics for sure. and was encouraged to try it and was actually kind of good at it. And so, uh, you know, I went from there. But if you wanted to hear some about some glamorous stuff I did, we could talk all day about that. I did a stand-up show at a nursing home once. which was uh, I described it as like doing stand-up comedy for stuffed animals. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty brutal, man. But um no. yeah, it was it was weird and you know, there's been a lot of stuff this last year that I uh, has been depressing and I guess that was just another thing that was kind of like, oh, I found this cool, creatively fulfilling thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. nah, now nah, you can't do that anymore. So it's it's been weird.
1: Yeah, man. I don't have a ton of stand-up experience. I did it a bit mainly as like a project in grad school. Um <laughs> and I you know, I had kind of like at the time I had kind of like planned out my, you know, this whole project I was doing on stand-up with my professor and everything. And I was like, I'm going to start going to the local comedy club and start doing open mic nights and see where it takes me, you know? And then I realized like open mic night at the only local comedy club was like right at the same time as my class. Ah. <laughs> so It was like, you know, at that point it was like too late to back out of the project. So I just, I had to, I, I ended up resorting to, doing a couple of open mic nights at like a local coffee house, which
0: were these music open mics primarily
1: primarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was one of those places where like open mic night existed, but people went to open mic night mainly to laugh at the terrible performers or and, and not, I mean, not in a good way, like <laughs> you know i I saw a couple of other of other uh stand up comics try to try to do these open mic nights, and they're you know not a single laugh ever you know it's like rough people, man i've I've yeah. done
0: that and uh it is a very, very hard thing to do because people show up for a comedy show, even if it's a comedy open mic, like open to laughing, like they want to yeah, laugh for the most right, part right it, and you go to a music open mic and no matter how you're introduced. <laughs> they just aren't in the right mind frame for comedy. And like, even if someone says this guy's going to do comedy, the audience still just doesn't understand why you're not singing. (laughs) And it's really, really brutal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was bad. Um, You know, I, I did the, at the end of the year I ended up doing the same set for like my class and I got some laughs then. I don't know how many were pity laughs, but it, uh, you know, felt a lot better.
0: <laughs> so, I think I think it's time you revive it right now in the in the pandemic. I think it's time you get back out
1: there in crowded small rooms and
0: there this you go, the time, Luke, your career yeah. is not over. We're bringing it back.
1: <laughs> Man. I think the pandemic, I think the pandemic was bad for a lot of people's careers though. You know, like I, I actually had, I had a book come out, um, about a year ago. Um, so this was still kind of at the height of the pandemic August of, of 2020. And it was kind of a big sales disappointment and, you know, like not being able to, not being able to do book signings and, you know, not having a lot of people milling through Barnes and Noble noticing your book on the, new really like, apparently that makes a big difference, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I at first I was optimistic. I was like, everybody's stuck at home. Of course they're going to want to read books, you know? No, nope, (laughs) it didn't work out. Um, so yeah, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how you are maybe not my typical guest on this show or. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you can blame your producer, Blake.
1: (laughs) I blame him for everything.
0: Well, that's a good policy, but you can specifically blame him for me being here. Uh, (laughs) He reached out to me because we have a mutual friend actually the guy we met through is a guy named Jeff Wyrick and uh-huh. Jeff remembered a story I had told him in college and I don't know if you want me to go into the topic now or what but I will say that uh when when I was asked to do the show you know I went back and was listening to some episodes and kind of looking at least looking through the description of every episode <laughs> and uh yeah they were all most mostly pretty heavy there was a lot of uh, you know people who changed their religious views or changed political views or you know, some major thing. And uh, yeah. I'm here to talk about something dumb, <laughs> which is really? uh, probably, I guess, kind of my my genre considering my podcast. But yes, yeah, so I hope your listeners, uh, now's the time they should lower their expectations if they're hoping for a serious <laughs> theological or philosophical discussion.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a show, I, I, I tell people it's a very me show. Like we talk about whatever I feel like talking about, you know, which I like to mix it up. You know, I like to, um, I like to talk religion and politics. Sometimes I like to talk about dumb stuff like pop culture and punctuation. We've done like, I think two episodes on punctuation on the show. Uh, we, we did one about the Oxford comma and one about what two spaces after a period, I think. So, you know, um, and we've, we've done pop culture episodes and stuff. It's, you know, my thing is I like to either take like really heady stuff and bring it down and make it stupid or take really stupid stuff and try to elevate it a little bit. <laughs> sure. Well, listen, uh, you
0: know, we, I don't, I'm not trying to keep bringing it back to my podcast, but I do just want to say that that's sort of uh, what I've done for a living now <laughs> for a while, not for a living, but I've done on my podcast for a while. We decided my friend Jacob Smith and I uh, we're always fascinated with Hulk Hogan as a, as a cultural figure. Um, we're not really <laughs> wrestling fans. We both were as kids. Uh, we both outgrew it. I've kind of come back into appreciating it a little more, but it's not something I regularly watch. Sure, but it's like Hulk Hogan just never really went away. Like he's somehow omnipresent in the culture, and uh, it's just weird to us that he was able to star in you know twenty or thirty movies and a reality show and a scripted TV show, and he's just got all these endorsement deals and he recorded an album. And so we just kind of jokingly one time said we could probably have a whole podcast just exploring Hulk Hogan's non wrestling career. And we sort of laughed and then decided to do that. So at this point we're a hundred and I don't know the exact number. We're 160 something episodes in maybe that seems a little high. Maybe it's one forty something. And we're on Hulk Hogan's like fifth movie Mm. because that's how much detail we've gone into breaking down this stuff. We do take Hogan hiatuses occasionally and talk about other movies, but, um, what I'm saying is I, I'm very familiar with talking about something dumb for a long time and giving it a lot more attention than it deserves. So I'm <laughs> your man.
1: So how many Hulk Hogan movies are there? Do you
0: know? Top of my head, I don't have an exact number. <laughs> um, at one point, I would have known this when we first started the show, but I want to say maybe close to 25, hmm. something like that. And, you know, most of them were, well, all of them were not well received, but most of them, I mean weren't well-known or anything uh his first movie was probably his most well-known one which was uh no holds barred mm-hmm. and then after that we had uh, suburban commando that was another pretty pretty popular movie i guess and i watched it as a kid but yeah i don't know he's done a lot of stuff um some of it's not what you'd expect from a hulk hogan movie either like you know where he's playing us a, a lot of them are kind of family friendly but he's got stuff where he's playing like a commando who's killing a lot of people and there's sex scenes in his movies and it's it's very weird
1: yeah watching uh watching hulk hogan have sex has definitely become an important part of pop culture
0: It somehow like completely Um, (laughs) changed the internet
1: forever (laughs) right how weird is that how weird is that yeah it's weird to me um it's weird to me how huge wrestling was in the 80s you know it's like Prior to that, it was basically just like a carnival sideshow. And since then, it's kind of died down into kind of this niche corner of entertainment. But in the 80s, it was like the hugest thing in the world.
0: Yeah, super mainstream. Close to and, it. And you know, it was the whole, had the whole MTV connection and everything. And yeah, and Hulk Hogan was right there in the center of it. I mean, he was the face of the time when wrestling became like the center of entertainment. And it's just a, he's just
1: an odd man. <laughs> okay so before we get to what we're actually going to talk about i i have one more question yeah. for you about about wrestling because i i've we've actually talked about this once on the show before like a couple of years ago but um i think the standard the standard interpretation of wrestling getting huge in the 80s was just this uh idea that like we had run from vietnam with our tail between our legs as a country and we needed to feel like big men again or whatever do you so two-part question. Do you buy into that? And does that mean after the debacle that Afghanistan was, we're going to see a huge resurgence in pro wrestling? Or
0: I, I never would have thought to apply that. It's very possible. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've One thing that I've always thought was interesting about wrestling is, so even now, like I said, I don't really watch wrestling, but I've always been fascinated by like the behind-the-scenes aspect of it because sure. it's such a dumb thing that so many people enjoy so much and it makes so much money. But when Mm -hmm. you really start looking into the history of it, it's been around in a form that's not that dissimilar from where it was in the eighties and where it is now for a very, very long time. And uh, I'm trying to look on my bookshelf right now to see the name of a graphic novel someone gave me, but I can't find it. And I'm blanking on the name. Maybe I can message it to you later and you can let your listeners know if they want to hear it or want to read it, but it's, a graphic novel that explores the history of professional wrestling. It's really, really well done. And, uh, you know, without boring you too much, I'm sure there is a cultural aspect to why wrestling blew up then, but a lot of it had to do with, uh, the somewhat evil business practices of Vince McMahon, <laughs> Jr. For sure. Who sort of, uh, did this incredibly brilliant thing where he rated the best talent from all the different regional wrestling promotions and, mm launched a nationwide thing kind of right whenever, you know, MTV was becoming a thing and he got yeah. in with MTV and it just blew up. So I'm sure there is some, you know, masculinity explanation for it, but uh, I've never really thought about that. I'd have to give it some thought. I don't know. Um, But I would say there's probably a chance wrestling is going to explode again. Because if you look at history, it's happened cyclically over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So get, get
1: ready, Luke. I know you're excited. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to be real honest with you. I have never been much of a wrestling fan. Um, but I do, I do write for uh, a website called, um, it's called grunge.com. And I mean, straight talk, they're basically a clickbait factory, you know? (laughs) Um, and they basically, they give you articles that they think will attract traffic. And then you, you know, you have to write the article, research and write the article based on the title. Um, So I ended up writing actually a really interesting to me article uh, for them a while ago about how Rowdy Roddy Piper once wrestled a bear in his early days, like literally wrestled a bear. Not a whole lot more to that story. Just I thought it was funny. Um, Well, I'm
0: going to have to check that out. And while you were telling me that I did just locate the book, Uh, it's called The Comic Book Story of Professional Wrestling, a hardcore, high-flying, no-holds-barred history of the one true sport. And the author's name is Aubrey Sitterson. Right on. right on. uh, That's a really good read. Even if you're not interested in wrestling, it's just a, it's a pretty fascinating book.
1: All right. Well, this has been fun talking about wrestling. Like I said, even though I don't watch wrestling, I do find it interesting to talk about just because it's this weird phenomenon to me um, that it's, you know, just big muscle men beating each other with chairs. And like some people follow it obsessively. Like that's Mm just, you know, even if you're not a fan of, of, uh, of the sport, it's just fascinating for what it is. But, you're not here to talk about wrestling. Um, we're here to talk about something I think is maybe slightly classier than wrestling. I feel like it's a little ah, up the ladder. <laughs> it's it's maybe more highbrow.
0: Um, but if you really get into it, it's probably not that classy. Um, we can talk about that. <laughs> talk about that as we get through it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, I mean, rock and roll at the end of the day is just, you know, a bunch of greasy white guys strumming guitars and singing about sex usually but there are people who take it very very seriously yeah yeah <laughs> um, and we, I... call them, we call them boomers for the most part but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> well uh that's sort of where this started
0: was me taking rock and roll very seriously uh, i used to work at hastings when i was in college
1: for sure yeah I remember hastings i do remember hastings yeah i mean I miss Hastings totally gone now. Right. Like yeah. The, the company
0: closed down company and I went down really business. bummed me out. i I still really miss it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it was my college job. So I worked in the back room at Hastings. We did all the receiving, we would go through and, you know, put stickers on the CDs and everything. And, uh, we had a store discount. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, this is the time for me to really dive into kind of like the big albums, the stuff that I've missed out on. And so sure. we had a particular discount on used albums. So Hmm. I would, when I say albums, not vinyl, um, these were CDs,
1: CDs, back when CDs were still a thing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, as a result, I still own a bunch of CDs because for our used discount, we could get stuff for, I want to say it was whatever the store paid the customer for it. Plus maybe 10%. I don't remember exactly, but it wasn't a lot. So you could get a used CD for often two, $3. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, I took full advantage of it. So I would end up spending almost (laughs) my whole paycheck. But as kind of a guy who was a hipster at that point or something, never really a hipster, but more of a just kind of pretentious snob about stuff. <laughs> I started like wanting to figure out which are the important albums, what are the albums I want to own? And so I was always mm-hmm. reading books about, you know, the 50 greatest albums of all time and mm-hmm. reading that kind of thing, reading listicles about the essential classic rock albums. And so a lot of times I would end up buying like greatest hits albums by rock bands from mm-hmm. the 70s, that kind of thing. And a lot of that stuff is really great. I don't regret it. I'm just saying, I don't know that I was approaching it from the best point of view. I was kind of like wanting to really educate myself in music.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if you're, if you're going to try to take like 60s, 70s rock seriously, you really have to listen to albums, not just collections of songs. Cause that's a- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. definitely not the
0: way to explore most artists, especially that era, mm-hmm. but uh, I've always been a huge Beatles guy. For so sure. I was—I knew all their stuff. You can see a Beatles poster or two behind me, actually. Oh yeah, right on. But uh, you know, I knew a lot about the Rolling Stones, but I mostly knew the singles, mm-hmm. and I was very, very familiar with the Hot Rocks album, which is kind of a two-disc uh, greatest hits album that's you know really focused on the early Stones when they were a lot more of a pop rock band. Mm-hmm. And I had always heard about the album Exile on Main Street. -hmm. Everyone had always said this is one of the greatest albums ever. It's one of the greatest albums in rock history. So I was always keeping an eye out for it. And at one point, this was around Halloween of 2006. I don't know the exact time. I just remember it being Mm -hmm. near Halloween. I was kind of browsing through our used CD selection there at the store and found a copy of it. Mm -hmm. So I bought it and, you know, was really excited because I was just going to hear one of the greatest albums of all time. And uh, what I did is listen to it and not like it that much. Mm. I put it in the CD player and I was just a little disappointed in it. And I guess I'm just setting this up and then I'll go into the change my mind part, but for sure. Yeah. That night, maybe the next night I was with my girlfriend, we went out to eat. And for some reason we got in a fight. I don't remember <laughs> why. And yeah. I ended up, uh, at some point, I think she wasn't in the car as still at this point. I don't remember for sure though, but I ended up punching my dashboard like a child, like an idiot, (laughs) not a smart thing to do. And for the record, I do want to say this particular girlfriend is now my wife of over 15 years. (laughs) So, you know, she somehow stayed through that stupidity of me punching my dashboard over a fight that we were in over probably (laughs) nothing, something to do with dinner. I don't know, but that CD was in the CD player and I punched, I said the dashboard, I actually punched the radio. Wow. And broke the CD player. Oh my gosh. And so the CD would not eject (laughs) and I wasn't able to change the input. So I couldn't switch over to the radio. So I don't know how that happened. This was the factory CD player in a Honda civic. I guess this would have been like a 2004 or five Honda civic. Um, But anyway, so the CD is now stuck in there and you know, I'm a college student at that time. It's not like I'm going to, have a lot of extra money. I already told you I was spending my whole paycheck on UCDs. <laughs> so I couldn't just afford to go buy a new CD player right away. For sure. So for a while, this album is stuck in there. And when I say <laughs> a while, I mean, I want to say <laughs> over six months. And the, the reason I know this time frame so well is because I remember it happened near Halloween. I moved from Nacogdoches, Texas, where I went to college to tyler texas where i live now uh in january of 2007 (laughs) and i had the cd player replaced here in tyler so i know i had moved here and i know it had been (laughs) i believe it had been about six months later where the only thing i could ever listen to in my car was this cd (laughs) and i do remember not long after it happened having to take a road trip of some sort i don't remember (laughs) <laughs> exactly why but i had to drive somewhere that was you know 3 hours each way or so and just listen to this cd on a loop <laughs> and um let me ask you are you familiar with this album
1: yeah i i actually had it on repeat this morning cuz i was trying right. to prepare for prepare for the conversation um i was going to say at least it's a double album so there's a little bit of length to it so you know to listen to the same songs over and over again but uh
0: it would have been yeah. worse if it was a cd single Right, right. <laughs> I think that was uh, on how I met your mother. I think uh they had that um I can't think what is that song, The Proclaimers, I Would Walk Five Hundred Miles. Oh, that song yeah. was stuck in mm-hmm. a on cassette on a single in the CD
1: in the tape <laughs> pa- player of their car like all through college. Well,
0: but um, let me ask you this
1: 'cause I'm cause I'm curious. Cause I, I want clarification. Is this a situation where you were able to turn it off if you wanted? So you could listen to exile and main street or nothing or was yeah. it just like okay i, all I right. could turn it off
0: or at least turn it all the way down yeah okay but um i don't know as i said i was in kind of a music nerd stage at that point so i was used to and i don't even think i owned an ipod yet at this point uh so mm. i was used to like going to you know drive 20 minutes somewhere and grabbing like four or five cds because i might want to mm. change it was it's very stupid <laughs> but so I don't know that it ever occurred to me to drive in silence because it was like, well, this is wasted time. I could be listening to something, something good, you know? Um, so I was used to like cycling through several albums anytime I drove. And in this case, couldn't do that. Just exile on main street.
1: <laughs> so, um, so you listened to the album. Had you heard it prior to prepping? I don't think I'd listened to it beginning to end. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of iconic stone songs on it. Um, So I've probably heard those before. Um, there are several songs on there that I have now heard separately from
0: this album quite a bit. But at the time, I think I only knew one song, which mm-hmm. was Tumbling Dice, which is the only real hit from this album. OK. Uh, and I think I knew it from a casino commercial <laughs> that played because uh, I live close enough to Shreveport, Louisiana, that we get commercials for the casinos sometimes.
1: Makes sense, yeah.
0: But, um, so I was kind of used to the Stones in their, I guess you would say more of their pop phase, where there's really big hooks in the songs, and mm-hmm. uh, they're mm-hmm. really crisply produced, and, you know, like big catchy riffs. Keith, Keith Richards was very good at writing, like, a riff that would be an earworm on its own. For sure. And this album is not like that. It's very, uh, I guess you would say very, like, the the mix is very muddied. And Mm -hmm. so especially when you first listen to it it just i didn't think it sounded that good i mean there's a lot of like instruments fading in and out and the vocals Mm -hmm. are mixed very low for some reason on almost every track Mm -hmm. which uh when you're first hearing it it just i don't know nothing jumped out at me about the album and i was like well that was boring I i don't none of these songs are that great none of them are that catchy you know and uh it's actually kind of a perfect album to listen to over and over because due to the way it's mixed parts jump out at you a lot from it Mm -hmm. and so it actually was kind of a perfect experiment that i unwittingly conducted like listening to this very layered very very uh, deceptively detailed album and yeah so i don't know the the only reason i said you know before we recorded this i told you that i was hoping you weren't too disappointed in where I changed my mind because I did drastically change my mind about this album and went from not liking it to it being, you know, one of my favorite albums of all time. Mm-hmm. But there was only a relatively short period of time where I actively didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, that was only for a couple of days as I was listening, I was very disappointed. And yeah. then I quickly sort of started to grab onto it, but yeah, I don't know. Um, did you read anything about the making of this album? Cause that's really fascinating. A bit. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, so I'm probably butchering some facts a little, you know, but <laughs> it's, it's called Exile on Main Street because uh, at the time they recorded this album, the Stones were tax exiles because mm-hmm. uh, the tax rates in Great Britain at that point were very, very high. Mm-hmm. And this actually a lot of performers did this where they would end up leaving Great Britain for a while to avoid paying income, <laughs> avoid paying tax on income, especially in years yeah. where they were going to be especially active, but they had been hit with a pretty large tax bill and decided, okay, we're leaving England. <laughs> and so they went to South France and, uh, rented this mansion that Keith Richards was living in that there's a famous story that apparently is apocryphal, but, uh, there's a famous story that the house was once occupied by Nazis during the Nazi occupation of France. Hmm. Uh, and so there is some stuff, in the house that seems to indicate that like there are heat vents built into the floor in some rooms that are shaped like a swastika weird but if you read online you'll find out that that was more of a common decoration sort of thing at that point that yeah certain people use you know preemptive to the nazis even being in (laughs) france and the nazis were only in that region for a relatively short time they probably didn't live there
1: probably not long enough to remodel the mansion That's exactly you know what the article i was
0: reading said they probably didn't call in a contractor that's not the nazis first priority we need more swastikas in here (laughs) (laughs) you know can you we need an hvac guy to come put a swastika in the floor but either way it's this big huge mansion that kind of had a little bit of a dark atmosphere apparently and uh Mm. i don't know if you know this your listeners may not know this Uh, it's a little known fact but keith richards uh, is he's done a lot of drugs Really, Keith Keith Richards and drugs. Keith Richards, the guitarist of the Rolling Stones, uh, people think of him as this squeaky clean guy, (laughs) but he actually did a lot of heroin and stuff. But apparently, apparently, this was like the peak of his junkie era, and uh, they recorded this album in the basement of this mansion, and you can read a lot of accounts of it. But it was sort of like this revolving door of shady characters showing up and drug dealers bringing you know, bags of drugs. And then other musicians were visiting like Graham Parsons was there for quite a while while they were recording this album. John Lennon popped by at one point. Um, and there's just a lot of shadiness going on. I read a a report about Keith nodding out while he was trying to record a song to the point the producer had to leave and drive 30 minutes back to his place. He got there and Keith was on the phone saying, come back. I just figured out the guitar part. (laughs) And, uh, there's just a lot of interesting stuff about the entire band wouldn't only show up for the sessions because they were either too stoned or hung over or <laughs> so the personnel is weird. So like the producer, Jimmy Miller plays drums on several tracks because Charlie Watts wasn't around. The bass player, Bill Wyman is only on maybe half the tracks. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just this weird like soup of personnel mm-hmm. and uh, apparently what's kind of funny. is so that's the, the mystique of this album is you know it was all recorded in this this mansion and they were all losing their minds and you know whatever <laughs> but all of the vocals were recorded in los angeles later
1: that's right i saw that yeah, yeah. which is
0: just kind of funny because it sort of undercuts a little bit of that of that dark mystique but um i don't know <laughs> i just feel like some of that's captured in the album when you're listening and it's just like the guitars will blend together with horns quite a bit and you're mm-hmm. it's just not very crisply mixed and uh One interesting thing that I I think kind of comes off in the album is they were recording in this basement. Apparently in that region of France, it's very, very humid, particularly in basements. Mm. And so they were having an incredibly hard time keeping guitars in tune.
1: Oh, for sure. yeah.
0: And so apparently pretty often during the middle of a song, they would realize the guitar is out of tune and have to stop. And Mm. there are some times on the album where things are just a little bit out of tune in a sort of charming way. Hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh yeah i don't know i mean it, it, there's a lot of country elements to this which i've always thought the stones when the stones did country music it was one of my favorite things ever mm-hmm. and uh there's a lot of gospel influences and a lot of gospel backing vocals and it's just a really interesting album that kind of doesn't really fit in with anything else the stones ever did and apparently mick jagger does not like this album which i always thought was interesting mm-hmm. and uh one more thing and then I'll, I'll stop talking and let you tell me what you want to hear. Yeah. yeah. But this album in general has kind of gone through a bit of a reappraisal by critics the same way that I went through it. Apparently it was not well received when it first came out for a lot of the reasons I've been talking about poor mixes. The vocals are hard to hear, you know, the songs aren't, there's not really a lot of big hooks, et cetera. And then it over the next decade. And then now, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, has become a really acclaimed album and considered by many people that one of the best albums ever recorded. But I don't know. I kind of experienced that in a little microcosm in my crappy Honda Civic.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really does like listening, li- listening to this album really does feel like just drifting through a drug fuel haze over a weekend or something. And it, I mean, it, it is. You're, you're right. There's not a whole lot of hooks, but it, it definitely captures Something, right? Mm -hmm. It it definitely captures the feeling of maybe spending a weekend drugged out of your mind with the stones, which is, it's not nothing, you know, it's, um, hey thanks so much for listening to changed my mind i will flip you right back to that conversation in just a second but real quick i want to talk about the patreon we are a listener supported show everything we do is paid for with donations Your donations help me pay my editor and my producer, and they help me keep the lights on here at Change My Mind. Supporters get all kinds of cool benefits, including early access to episodes, VIP access to both me and the producer, and also a bonus episode every month. This month, we're featuring a conversation with media and new humanities professor Dominic Petman at the New School in New York City. He told me about how he became convinced that maybe humanism is not the correct narrative of the universe. I mean, I also love just cetaceans. I mean, they, they came onto land for s- several million years. They looked around and went, screw this, we're going back to to the ocean and so you know it's like whales and dolphins saw the the dangers of coming onto land growing thumbs and thinking you're the best thing ever Mm -hmm. and um now they're they're seeing why so i mean i I mean I'm, i'm being somewhat glib but i i also think there's something to this um i think there's something healthy about uh Questioning <laughs> human exceptionalism um, in a counterintuitive way. To hear the rest of that conversation, go to patreon.com slash my mind, where you can become a supporter for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you so much to all our listeners and all our supporters for helping us keep thoughtful conversation like this on the internet. I'll go ahead and flip you back to the conversation you were just listening to. here's something that's been on my mind a lot. Um, and I've actually, I think I've talked about it on the show a bit here and there. Um, but this whole concept of like spending time with an album, you know, of uh, just listening to something over and over until you get at, until you get at, until you get it is what I'm trying to say. Um, I feel like that's almost lost now, you know, like, I mean, when I was, like, a teenager with not a ton of money, you know, and CDs cost, like, $15, 20 each, it was, like, after I buy an album, like, I either listen to this or nothing, you know, or an older one in my collection, you know. And there are actually an awful lot of albums um, that I didn't like the first time I, like, after I bought them, I I put popped it in my CD player and was, like, so disappointed with how I, not into it I was but because I had nothing else to listen to I listened to him again and again until I finally wrapped my head around it and um you know uh I don't know if you know Ben Folds five at all but the the unauthorized biography of Reinhold Messner their third album that was a big one for me like that like there's almost no hooks on that album but after spending you know a few hours with it I was like wow this is actually really brilliant um but dang you know now you you spend like what 10 bucks a month on Spotify and you can listen to anything, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, you know, I've never like been literally physically forced to listen to the same CD over and over again, like you have. Um, But man, what do you think about that? Like, is that, is, is this, is Spotify like the death of music that requires attention or.
0: (laughs) I feel like it's, I mean, I, I guess the album as a concept probably died even pre spotify for sure Uh, sort of with the invention of the ipod i guess Mm -hmm. it sort of made Mm -hmm. it you know i mean there were mixed cds prior to that but it still just wasn't the same as you don't have to put any work into skipping around on an ipod i mean you can just Mm -hmm. kind of jump around and yeah i mean i guess uh an album like this in particular is something that just would never work now because Mm -hmm. there is no single that's going to make you want to come back to it really it's just a you have to take it as a whole and listen to it and i don't know if i guess our society in general is is like that now you know with social media and twitter and the constant refreshing and needing you know you're like the lab rat that's hooked on the morphine or whatever and you're just going to keep pushing the button and uh it makes me wonder now if i came across this album at this point if i would have ever really appreciated it, or if i would have just kind of skipped around and been like "Eh, i don't know yeah. i don't like this yeah. but yeah i think i think that's probably something that's being said that something that's a good point to be made about our entire society and uh the scary thing to me is like i don't really know how it what's the end point because mm-hmm. like you know it just keeps going and going and going everything's more accessible and so where are we headed like are our songs going to be 10 seconds long like grindcore bands <laughs> i mean that's kind of are you know are you do you know grindcore music yeah or agoraphobic yeah. nosebleed fan or any of that sort of stuff um, that was a that was band
1: a fan, but i'm familiar with the genre yeah yeah
0: i found a cd also at hastings uh the band agoraphobic nosebleed and i <laughs> i wouldn't say i liked it but i enjoyed how silly it was <laughs> but For sure. yeah. i don't know it just seems weird and you know i don't want to sound like too much of an old man i mean i'm not even quite <laughs> 40 yet and i sound like i'm in my 80s but it is kind of sad because like that whole art form seems to be sort of dead other than. A group of people who want to seek it out to hear a whole album
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you were saying earlier when we were talking about wrestling though that everything moves in cycles yeah do you see do you see album oriented music ever coming back or
0: i think it could be sort of a hipster thing and i mean yeah you know there's a i mean i guess I mean, you vinyl's at,
1: back now so who knows right vinyl
0: is back that's really true and i mean you know a lot of things are created sort of as a reaction to what the popular thing is Right. So we're getting to this like micro culture where everything is taken in tiny doses. Is that the next thing where people are like, "Oh yeah, well this song is six minutes long," you know, and, and <laughs> that grows back into. I released a double album. Yeah, so yeah, that's a good point. I guess it could get there. I just i I don't see where it is going, where the turn's going to happen. But that's the thing. I don't know how old you are, but I think we're old enough that I, you know, we're we're not. We don't have our finger on the pulse of things anymore, so it could happen right <laughs> in front of us. And we won't know it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty annoyed with how, how thoroughly the internet has killed my attention span. You know, it's killed mine for sure. And like, not in a good way. <laughs> and I'm someone who suffers from a
0: pretty debilitating anxiety mm, and mm. I have my entire life. And so I'm also at this point, you know, I've learned to deal with it through therapy and medication and all that, and I, but still have bad times. And so p- Twitter is probably not the best thing for that because it's like feeding this anxiety where you can just refresh, oh, is there going to be big news now? And for me, a lot of it, I mentioned earlier that I write for Mavs Moneyball. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge sports guy and sports is sort of a crutch for me to get away from like the other parts of the world mm-hmm. that aren't so mm-hmm. fun. But sports becomes this thing I'm overly relying on, especially through Twitter, where I'm like constantly refreshing to, you know, to see what the next thing is. And I think I've lost the thread of what you were asking me. I apologize, but um, <laughs> but I'm just saying it's it's like a recipe for anxious people to be miserable with the way, the way technology has has morphed our brains. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah. The the internet has ruined me
1: in a lot of ways. I guess I remember like early in the 2000s, like when I was in college you know and wikipedia was first getting big like and people were talking about like falling down a wiki hole and just reading for fascinated for hours and hours and hours i don't think i can do that anymore you know like i think like (laughs) that was maybe maybe the lighter side of the internet I, you know i I don't know like i heard someone once call social media what what do they call it emotional roulette where you're just pulling the handle, you know, hoping it makes you feel something over and mm-hmm. over again. And that I, that's I, I, that's absolutely what it is. You know, 100%. like the second, the second my brain has nothing to do, I'm like whipping out my phone and switching over to Facebook and being like disappointed that there's no new posts. You know, I'm just like, God, what is this doing to me?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it can't be good. And uh, I've decided uh, I haven't done it, but I'm going to do it this weekend. Going to delete my Facebook, so that's one step in the right direction. But um, Twitter, I don't think I can let go of because of sports and fantasy football and everything. Sure. I still need it, so it's it's tough. It's got its hooks in me, man, for sure.
1: Well, and the thing is, if you're a creator, you feel like you need to be on social media to, to kind of promote your work, right? Like
0: that's sort of why I didn't delete Facebook uh, last year. I was really thinking about it, but at that point, I still was hoping to revive a stand-up comedy. Mm. i don't want to say career a hobby at one point and uh, i had done some networking you know through the couple of years i've been doing stand-up and i hesitated to delete it because of that but um for sure yeah i don't know man um the rolling stones are have led us into this despairing discussion about our (laughs) miserable brains who would have thought
1: yeah well you know i mean it's like 50 years ago we had real drug addictions and now we have like virtual drug addictions so is that progress or is that worse i don't know you know i guess it's cheaper (laughs) i mean the at least the people on actual drugs were making good music i don't know if we're even doing that now i don't know that's really true (laughs) so is there a classic
0: album coming that's fueled by twitter
1: there you go you know i i think i think i would actually buy that album if it was if it existed i would be really interested in that i would probably definitely relate to it All right. Well, um, let me ask you this. Um, aside from your your new beliefs themselves, or in this case, your new feeling, your new feelings about the um, the album, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind?
0: Well, OK, so this may be more specific to pop culture, but it definitely did make me realize that a lot of times I, the goodness in like a work of art is buried a little mm. bit and you're not mm-hmm. necessarily it's not, not going to jump out at you and um i don't know this this has sort of led led me to sometimes to a fault stick with things a little more so you may be like i don't know you, if you can see you know um, i've got a lot of books i'm a, a big reader and For uh sure i i've kind of like maybe maybe it was partially influenced by this and one of those guys that like if i start a book and i really really dislike it i still feel the need to finish it and so i wonder if that could have been influenced a little by this where it's like well who knows maybe if you grind through this incredibly boring poorly (laughs) written book uh you'll really like it at the end and so i don't know but i'm I'm like this with movies a lot i'm a huge movie guy as well i watch a lot of movies and there have been Mm -hmm. countless movies that i've watched the first time and not been that crazy about Mm -hmm. and then later rewatched and been like oh this is amazing Mm -hmm. and i Mm kind of think uh That's a lesson that maybe not an important lesson, but a lesson that people can (laughs) learn about art in particular is that you can't always judge it on a snap judgment.
1: There, there have definitely been a lot of a lot of movies that I had to watch a second time before I got what the big deal about them was. Um, Yeah, even you know classic movies and stuff, stuff that everybody's supposed to like or whatever. Um,
0: Well, and sometimes like okay, so I'll give you a perfect perfect example. One of my favorite movies of all time. This is not groundbreaking. It's one of the favorite movies of a lot of people. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Mm
2: -hmm. One Mm -hmm. of my
0: favorite movies. The first time I watched it, I didn't dislike it, but I think I was almost overwhelmed to where I felt like I didn't really take in what I'd seen. Mm -hmm. And so what I've learned about myself, and maybe this is related to the whole anxiety thing, is when I'm watching something like that, particularly something that I think is as great as that, I'm so enraptured by like trying to figure out what's going to happen next, and really caught up in it that I may not be fully recognizing how great what I've just seen is. And so I remember with that movie, on the second time I watched it, I was like, okay, I know where this is going and where it's ending, so I can kind of relax and just enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And uh, to my wife's credit, when we walked out of that movie, um, we didn't have kids then, so we could do stuff like drive two hours to go see a movie (laughs) when it's not playing in Tyler. Yeah, we went to the um, the Angelica Theater in uh Dallas a couple hours away, watched it, walked out, and I said, Gosh, I don't really know what to think about that. And my wife said, Oh, well it might have been the best movie I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. Yeah. And I was like, Oh yeah, I think you're right. And then I've seen it dozens of times since then and it very well might be my favorite movie. But um so I don't know. It's just I think I've just learned to give things a second chance if they don't quite think in with
1: you. For sure. Yeah. I need to see they, there will be blood again because I have not seen it since it was in theaters. However many, like 13 years ago was that or a little bit more? I don't know. Something, was a while ago. Maybe a little more than yeah. that. Uh, yeah. well, okay.
0: My oldest son is 12 and we didn't have kids in. So it's at least 13 years, <laughs> at old. least
1: 13 years ago. Yeah. I legitimately did not get it at all when I saw it and it was, it's fu- funny. I don't know if this is a funny story or not. It might be boring. Hey uh, editor, if, if this is boring, cut it out. Um, (laughs) no, but Blake, don't you dare. Yeah. No, when I saw it, I had like just graduated from college with a degree in film studies and I was going to it with this friend, like this guy I had basically just met who was like, it like actually worked in the film industry, you know? And so, you know, I knew it was like this big important movie and i knew he was in the industry and i had i had he knew i had this degree so i felt like i had to act like act really cool like i got it you know so we were walking out of theaters i was like that was amazing i liked the music i think it was it was awkward um so you've only seen it that one time i've only seen it that one time and you know since having thought about it and read what other people had to say about it i feel like if I watched it again, I would get it a lot more. I I think part of it was that there's those two characters, there's two characters that are supposed to be twins, right? And they're played by the same actor. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I got that they were even different characters. Okay, (laughs) That's how clueless I am. Um, (laughs) Like I, I just, as I mentioned, I have a degree in film studies, but I, you know, I am just absolute garbage at like picking up on, (laughs) <laughs> the intricacies of a movie plot. Um, <laughs> it's the same thing with um with the the JJ J. Abrams Star Trek movie that um everybody loved until JJ J. blew all his goodwill on making a bunch of bad movies after that. Um <laughs> I, you know, I I was I went to that just because I I was reviewing it for a site and I dragged my wife along. She didn't even really want to come and you know i was walking out i was like that was dumb and she was like that was the most amazing movie i've ever seen you know um and i you know so she actually she actually dragged me back to it to see it again and after seeing it again i was like oh no that was actually really good i just wasn't able to follow the plot the first time which you know.
0: <laughs> well i will say that uh, i just checked to make sure there will be blood is still on netflix so you can watch it pretty easily again if you you want to see it um do you like paul thomas anderson in general or are you not a not
1: a fan um yeah i mean i've liked some of his stuff he he directed punch drunk love right which i he did enjoyed quite a bit yeah that was I mean, actually
0: a... that was his uh last movie before this one which was 2007 okay, right by the way i looked it right up on. yeah um yeah he's he's probably my in my top two directors so i just kind of adore everything he does him and scorsese you know again real groundbreaking stuff a white yeah. man who loves martin scorsese's work and <laughs> paul thomas anderson but I. Uh, so I just, you know, <laughs> I ingest anything either of them puts out. And uh interestingly, Scorsese is a big Stones guy, mm-hmm. uh, kind of to the point of becoming cliché. And mm-hmm. uh I know at least one song from this album is in The Departed. But um and he recorded a uh concert film
1: called Shine a Oh, Light that's right. Stones, that's yeah. right. Yeah.
0: See? Sure. I brought it all back around.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you know, it t- took me it took me a long time to come around to this though, that like, if this is supposedly a great thing and I watch it or read it or listen to it or whatever, and don't connect with it, well, you know, maybe it's just like different people are connecting with it in ways that I'm not, you know, yeah. like, you know, there was a time in my life, especially in my high school and college years when I was just an absolute snob, you know, and it was like, if, if I thought something was dumb, I was like well that was dumb and if you like it you're dumb you know but <laughs> oh yeah i
0: think we um, all all of us who have podcasts go th- have gone through a phase like that
1: <laughs> <laughs> there is there is a certain narcissism to having your own podcast <laughs> definitely um, well and here i am with a podcast with my own name in the title so uh you know
0: <laughs> yeah well, at least mine um, has hulk hogan's name in the title i feel yeah. a little better
1: you know and it's like that's something that probably should be obvious because like you know, we've all read like a genuine classic work of literature, whether it's like Hamlet or Moby Dick or whatever that we don't personally connect with. Like that should be, should be obvious that like if thousands and thousands of people consider this one of the greatest things ever written, like maybe we're just not connecting with it on a personal level. And then maybe it wasn't written for people like us, but it's, I don't know. It, it, yeah, it takes the, a long I've, it takes a long time to come around to that realization in my experience. <laughs> I've sort of started
0: to have a shorthand for that. Uh, because I've have I've had this happen quite a bit where there's something that I just don't care for that I know a lot of people do. And I just have sort of started to say, like, look, I know I'm the one that's wrong because yeah. I've been outvoted quite a bit and I'm okay with that. I just don't care for this very much. But uh <laughs> it's interesting that you say Moby Dick as an example because my the guy I do my podcast with, Jacob, uh recently read Moby Dick and despised it. He hated it so much. And uh, it just, it's a perfect example of this where he was like, I realize this is probably considered a classic work for a reason. It's probably really great, but it ain't for me.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, the thing about Moby Dick was it was, it was critically reviled on its release. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, the critics just ripped it to shreds. Nobody thought it was even one of uh, Melville's great works until Years after his death, I don't think so. You know, it's as as tempting as it might be to talk about art and literature as as if there's some sort of objective canon. You know, it's really just like either a lot of people have read this work and connected with it, or people haven't. You know, um, and stuff stuff is moving in and out of the quote unquote canon all the time. So, uh, depending on how people are reacting to it now, you know, so something to think about. Um, I got three final questions that I try to ask all my guests, uh, this being nominally a philosophy podcast, uh, even though we talk about wrestling and whatever else sometimes, um, I just, I I really want to dig into these questions of, you know, how do we know what truth is? How do we know who we are? You know, how do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, So, first of all, what is identity? Do we all have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think?
0: I don't know. I think that's, uh, most people grapple with what their own identity is for a while. For sure. Um, And then, I don't know how to to really say that, because I think uh, your identity is not necessarily a set thing. I think it evolves and changes, and I think that... uh, it's sort of a two-edged sword because you want to know your own identity, but it is also a source. Can be a source of pain. The more you figure out, <laughs> you're you're figuring out who you are, and that's not always the most pleasant thing. And I uh, I don't know. Hmm. It's to me, um, I guess you know I'm just constantly learning things about yourself, things mm-hmm. you like, things you don't like, and so I don't know that identity is really a a set thing or if it changes as we go or as we get older. We just learn more and more about it. I'm not I'm not
1: really sure. Can you elaborate a little bit on that source of pain thing?
0: Oh, I think I just mean, um, as someone with, like I mentioned, terrible anxiety, someone who battles depression, Mm. it's very easy to be really hard on yourself. Mm. And so it's just sort of one of those things where, you know, those of us, those of us that have podcasts are probably a little narcissistic, as you said, but (laughs) there's an element of narcissism, I think, that's probably linked to extreme self-awareness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I don't know, I guess that seems a little contradictory because a lot of people that are narcissistic don't really come across as if they're aware of how narcissistic they are, but they're probably trying to cover something that they're not that fond of in themselves. And for me, I think it's just sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I guess as you learn yourself, you're just sort of going to identify things in yourself that are human and weak and things that you don't like as much. And uh, gosh, it's getting really dark all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, you know, the 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 sooner you can kind of come to grips with who you are, the 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 closer you can get to achieving happiness. But I guess like a good example of what I'm talking about is that I've just realized how much I sh- I'm going to struggle with like anxiety and depression mm, and all of that mm. sort of stuff and to the point where I come on a podcast of someone I just met and ramble about it. And it's uh, a—it's <laughs> just sort of a thing that, that you know I don't necessarily like about myself, that I am such a raw, open nerve with that. But it's just sort of who I am. And I, at this point, I had to accept, yeah, you can be kind of annoying, man, but that's just who you are.
1: <laughs> well, as we said, we live in the age of social media. So the universe around us is just a big anxiety and depression factory. So...
0: It is. And when you're, you know, know, born
1: with that (laughs) stuff already there
0: in your head, it can be very difficult. Um, but I I guess what I mean, what I'm trying to say as far as a source of pain is when you're someone who is very self-aware of yourself and is kind of taking stock of your own identity, uh, it's very hard to just be blissfully unaware of things. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the more aware of yourself you become, for me, at least it's like the more you realize uh, how aware you are of the things around you that maybe you don't love so much. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to really get at is saying it would have been really nice this last couple of years while everything was crappy to, <laughs> to not care so much and not, not be kind of aware of how you feel, but I definitely am
1: that way. Don't, don't quote me on this. Cause I, I know just about enough psychology to make me dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a time when I was a, I was an educational psychology grad student that that took okay. off not last terribly long um there are zero zero graduate degrees to my name okay. um but you know i i have um i my understanding is that um narcissistic personality disorder in the dsm is defined as an inferior inferiority complex as opposed to a superiority complex like it's mm-hmm. fueled ultimately by this kind of fear that you are not good enough so you have to put on airs about how great you are um, Which I relate to, probably just enough to make make me worry sometimes. (laughs) Well,
0: it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I think probably most people struggle with feelings of inferiority to some degree. Mm -hmm. Most, Most people, okay, let's say this, most people that are intelligent enough to realize that are going to grapple with that in one way or the other. And it seems to take one of two forms. One is this narcissistic point of view where, Oh, look how great I am. I want everyone to see how great I am. I'm going to post on Facebook about how great I am. So people will tell me how great I am. Yeah. And you look at it and you realize that those people are trying to cover for something. Mm -hmm. They're trying to compensate for something that they're afraid they're missing. But then you go in the other direction and there's people who are sometimes painfully self-deprecating. And I'm more in that category where, you know, I, I, Definitely, I'm not like a braggart, but if you really look at it in a lot of ways, that's its own form of narcissism, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. it's almost like you're fishing for compliments. I I saw a a quote one time that Orson Welles made about Woody Allen, and I don't remember the exact quote, but uh, so he just basically said that he can't stand a person like that that's so, you know, unsure of themselves, because in a lot of ways, it's the most arrogant way you can possibly be Mm -hmm. to think that you... Or it's like you're begging people to tell you how great you are by constantly acting like you don't think you're that great. So I don't know, it's sure. it's weird, but um what I'm saying is we're all terrible, I guess. That's what that's identity. <laughs> <Yeah, well, laughs> Identities were <more> terrible.
1: <laughs> and th- I mean, there is something to be said for the like if you're constantly self deprecating and constantly obsessing over whether or not you're good enough, like even if you think you're an awful person, you are self obsessed, which is not a desirable quality, you know? Nope. <laughs> not um, at all <laughs> there's a there's a line from um c.s lewis that i really appreciate that's um like true humility is not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less you know yeah. which i just think is deeply profound profound i i think i think about that line like once a day i think um but that's yeah that's a great one um continuing on that thread what is human nature are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? So
0: I actually uh, was wondering, because you know I saw this was a question you might ask me. Um, and in an email you sent me, you just mentioned what some of the type of questions you discussed. So I didn't want a script answer, so I didn't look at them too closely. But this one did come to mind for me. I would like to know if my answer is different now than it would have been a couple of years ago. Mm. Because the pandemic has really been tough for me Because of other people. Mm -hmm. And it's made me see the worst in other people quite a a bit. And it's made me have a pretty dark view of human nature because it appears that everywhere I look around me, I see selfishness and stupidity. And, you know, I mean, we all have our own views. We all have people that disagree with our views, but it just feels like I see so many people that are outwardly harming others Mm -hmm. that I think uh, human nature is. A little of what we're talking about uh, in the prior question being scared, mm-hmm. worrying that you're not good enough, worrying that you, you know, there's something wrong with you. But there's also this just destructive thing as part of human nature that I feel like has become evident over the not just the last two years in the pandemic, the few years prior to that, for reasons we won't get into, I guess, um, unless you want to, but you know, this, this is supposed to be about the Rolling Stones. Um, <laughs> but I just, I've felt very disillusioned with my fellow man over the last few years, just because of the the nature of things and the, the amount of hostility I see. And right now, you know, we're, we've been in this pandemic and it appeared that we had found somewhat of a light at the end of the tunnel that maybe could get us out of it. And then some of this is going to be shaded, of course, by where in the world you live. I live in Texas. <laughs> so that might, may be shading my view, but I, I just encounter a lot of people who seem to be, actively working against a solution to some of these problems. Mm-hmm. And uh to me that just comes across as this weird self-destructive part of human nature that's like we can't help but harm ourselves and those around us. So I don't know that I think individual people are viewing it that way. I think individual people for the most part by nature are friendly and want to be accepted by others and are not outwardly hostile, but it's more the group think part of human nature that it's uh it's very depressing when you look at it because it, it makes you feel hopeless because it's like, oh, well, human beings in general are just going to ruin everything. And that's what we're doing. And the Rolling well, Stones <laughs> when you talk about the Rolling Stones. Uh, one of the Rolling Stones died. If you want another down note recently. Yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah. Which <laughs> I think we all thought was never going to happen. Right. I mean, <laughs> Well, I guess he would have been the one
0: that uh, you hear the least about. Like yeah, with Keith sure. Richards, you know, people say he's immortal or whatever because he's put himself <laughs> through so much. Charlie Watts was the guy who I guess it makes sense to be the first one to go. Also the oldest member of the stones. Yeah. But I still don't believe Keith will die anytime soon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, to get back to what you were talking about though. I mean, that is like why I started doing this podcast, you know, like, um, like, I, you know, I, I mean, so much of the last, you know, half decade, decade have just been so depressing about you know, like real <laughs> realizing that human nature is probably fundamentally combative and self-destructive. Right. Um, and I just, I wanted to do something about like people growing and changing and hopefully maturing. Um, and that's, I mean, that's why I started doing this show, you know, and I, I don't know if it's made any sort of difference in the world. Um, but I got to try, you well, know, <laughs> all you,
0: you can do, I think Luke is I, you know, you want to try to make a difference in the world, but I've sort of started to realize that the best thing I can do is just try to maybe cut down what the world is to me a little bit, Mm -hmm. maybe insulate myself a little more. And so if you're, you know, you're, you're making this show to explore these things and it's probably helping quite a few people, but if it's helping you, you're doing what you need to do. That's all you can really control, which is Mm. part of a thing that I think I've been realizing lately is I might need to, cut down on my world a little bit, which is why when I talk about getting rid of social media, like, well, what is social media for? It's to stay in touch with a lot of people and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. What if I didn't know what they were doing? I think it would be better. And I could limit the people I'm in touch with a lot more and I, it would be good, but I don't know. I just, I've, I've really struggled over the last couple of years with, with other people. And especially now that, you know, know, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing right now with, uh, I have to deal on a daily basis with, quite a bit of people who are very vocally anti-vax and anti-mask and mm-hmm. that's that's been very tough for me. I've had a hard time with that and I do have people in my extended family who are they're anti-vax but they're pro taking horse medicine. <laughs> like I've had I I know I don't know them real well, but I know who some of these people are. Mm-hmm. And that is so discouraging to me that it's like oh so we're just we're doomed. This is just hopeless yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Gosh. anyway um horse yeah. medicine they're taking horse medicine
1: i know well and so much of that as we were talking about is wrapped up in identity like once you've defined yourself as being the big brain who sees through the government conspiracies and knows they're hiding the real medicine from you like you will do literally whatever the opposite is of you know coming out of the scientific community um
0: and what better place to hide the real medicine than inside a horse that's where they chose to hide it.
1: I came, I came across a, a great tweet the other day that was like, in retrospect, hiding all the microchips inside horse dewormer was a stroke of genius. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty great.
0: It's discouraging, man. So I think right now my view of human nature is probably a lot darker than it may have been a couple years ago, but can't really say. All I, I've just kind of been trying to remind myself that there are – a lot of good people. And there are a yeah. lot of people that, I, you know, think like me and that I want to have part of my life. So maybe I should focus on those people in my own family and maybe control what little bit of human nature I
1: can. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I was, it took me a long time to figure out what the, um, the slogan you see. Sometimes a think globally act locally, what that meant. Um, but I think I've aged into it. I think I get it now, you know, um finally uh what is truth how do you know truth and how do you know when you, when you found truth what do you think
0: Yeah I don't know that's also something that's become very very difficult uh because there is just so much information out there mm-hmm. that it's very difficult and I'm talking about like an empirical truth mm-hmm. and I know maybe you're talking more philosophically but uh I, that's something I've thought about lately is trying to you know, like I've had over the last couple of years this was a oh let's say pre two thousand twenty some uh heated arguments with close family members over over certain issues mm-hmm. uh, and not anything that couldn't be overcome, but you know um well i'll just I'll just say me and my dad have had some very heated political arguments over the last mm-hmm. few years, and there's this very, very difficult gulf to breach there where you know if you cite any sort of statistic or something to prove something it's just dismissed as oh well that's a propaganda item from the Mm -hmm. other side that's a liberal propaganda item is my dad's (laughs) go-to and it's like then he'll turn around and spew out the equivalent fact from a opposite source Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of like you realize that people are just going to believe whatever they believe and it's hard to define what the truth is. Yeah. And so then you look at it and you say, well, clearly I'm the one that's right here. I'm citing the real facts, but then it's like, well, am I (laughs) like, how do we know what's true and what's not? And there's good things about the open nature of things. Now there's people can do their own research. They can find more information than ever before. There's not just one stream of what the truth is. But it also the negative side of that is it becomes very hard to know what is correct. Yeah. And so on an sure. empirical level, it's very hard to say what the truth is on a philosophical level. ooh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I do know what the truth is. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I honestly don't know, because as I was I was about to say, you know, you're only going to find the truth within yourself. But then, you know, as we've been talking about, uh, your brain can lie to you a lot <laughs> and can tell you some harmful things at times. So. I don't know what the truth is. Look, I think that's my whole problem. What is the truth
1: for sure? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's this kind of philosophical distinction, I guess, between facts on the one hand and like capital T truth on the other. And ideally you want the latter to be informed by the former, but when it's hard to even find the former, it's like, what are you going to do? Right. Um, Gosh, yeah. I mean, I have a friend who um he's he's actually been on the show a couple of years ago, uh, named Tom Darrow. So if people want to go back to that episode and listen to it, they can. Um his his catchphrase is run it into the ground, um, which I've I've never heard from anyone but him. Um, but his what what he's saying is, you know, trace it all the way back to primary sources, right? Like don't just don't just trust whatever you read in xy and z blog you know like actually see if you can find direct evidence of this thing mm-hmm. um which i think is good advice um but you know then i guess it becomes a question of what do we accept as evidence you know <laughs> which is another problem itself you know i i had i had someone um uh, i Don't know why I let myself do this. I found my way into a debate about, about um, the moon landing. Did the moon landing happen the other day? And somebody was like, well, why don't they show pictures of the stuff we left behind on the moon? So I linked them to a site that had pictures of the, the moon landing site and everything. He's like, if these are real, why can I see the footprints? Like, you know, like, what we count as evidence. You, right? yeah, there like, is
0: no evidence that you can show them. You're going to have to take them to the moon yeah, or they're going <laughs> to have to hear like Sean Hannity talk about it. And then that's sorry. That's, maybe that's not the case here. But that's that's the whole problem for me is, you know, people get too in their own niche of what they will believe. And it's yeah. difficult, which is why I try to be somewhat. I've always tried to be very apolitical. Mm hmm. Because I'm like, I'm a simple man. I want to spend (laughs) my time on pop culture and, you know, comedy and stuff. I don't want to be outraged all the time. And that's become Mm -hmm. harder and harder to do. But uh, for sure. Yeah, I I feel like you asked me these questions. And with all three of them, I kind of said the same thing. Like, I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, this is something that I don't I don't know that can be answered uh, simply because it's the kind of thing that everyone's going to have a different answer for that's going to change from day to day.
1: Yeah. Well, that's why we talk about it, you know. Um, Exactly. Yeah. I there was a time when I was an idealist and was just like I'm going to connect with anybody and everybody on social media, I'm going to engage with them and in the last, you know, 6 years I have gotten very very okay with kind of muting, unfollowing, unfriending because yeah. I've come to the realization that like not everybody is here to seriously engage. Not everybody is actually interested in Talking about what the facts are, you know, like
0: absolutely. And I've I've really tried to do that too. Like, uh, that's that's kind of you know, I mentioned I was gonna delete Facebook. Um I I finally had to unfriend my next door neighbor mm-hmm. because of some of the stuff uh that was being posted. And then I was like, Well, should I have done that? Because they're gonna get mad and they're still gonna live next door and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, why am I worried about this? I need to just delete this whole thing mm-hmm. just get it out of my life. Um but yeah, man, I don't know. It's, um, it's all depressing and stuff, but you know, we got to, I guess you have to, when you shrink your world a little bit, you can try to find little things to be happy about within your own little world. And that's a lot easier to manage than the rest of the
1: world. So I think that's what yeah. my goal is. Well, and that said, if it's someone you have to deal with in the real world, there is something to be said for not being angry at this person 24 yep. seven, you know, like, you can absolutely. talk to them when you when you actually see them, and you know sometimes that sort of thing is a lot easier in person. Absolutely. You know? So, absolutely, Clint. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It has been a joy and a pleasure going deep with you about professional wrestling and classic absolutely. rock. <laughs> we uh, we um, we span the gamut quite
0: a bit. I will say that you know I, we mentioned up top I have my own podcast with a hundred and roughly one hundred and fifty episodes, and I don't think I've ever been a tenth. Of as serious as this, uh, in all those hours of recording, our, our show is very stupid and this is definitely not that. So it's been fun to do something different.
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's what I try to do here. I try to try to get the people who make dumb stuff to be a little more serious, try to get the serious people to be a little more fun. So that's the goal. Um, before we wrap up, you want to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your work.
0: Sure. So, uh, the podcast is called, by the way, this is a terrible name that we came up with and then realized later (laughs) It's hard for people to find. Um, It's called (laughs) What You Gonna Do, the Hulk Hogan Movie Podcast. And just for the record, Whatcha is one word, W H A T C H A. That has caused people so many problems. Originally, that that was the whole title, What You Gonna Do. And we finally realized if someone's Googling Hulk Hogan, they're not going to find it. So we added Hulk Hogan to the title. But uh, they can find me on Twitter if they want to see me occasionally tweet a dumb joke or retweet dumb jokes, sometimes talk about basketball, uh, at Toadlift, which is a weird Monty Python reference sort of, <laughs> um, and they can go to mavsmoneyball.com and they can see my occasional contributions talking about the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. Um, that's, that's yeah, me. That's where I'm at for sure.
1: All right. Well, this has been changed my mind with Luke T Harrington. I'm Luke T Harrington. You can, uh, find me, find me on Twitter at at Luke T. Harrington or at my website, Luke T. or you can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail.com. And I will see you next time. I heard it said once, And this was something I read on a blog like 15 years ago. I cannot remember which blog, and odds are the blog is long gone from the internet, so I won't be giving credit for this thought, Um, but you can uh, seek it out if you uh, care. But I heard it said once that a cinephile is a very different animal from a bibliophile. Um, That is a movie lover is a very different thing from a book lover. Um, and obviously this podcast was about music, but, um, I'm more of a book and movie guy. So I'm going to talk about books and movies for a second. Um, and the, the explanation the blogger gave was that a bibliophile, a book lover usually really, really loves a specific genre of book, right? And that's true. Whether you're talking about like, Uh, you know, nonfiction about World War II or like high fantasy or like biographies, right? If you're a bibliophile, you have one genre that you know you love and you will read anything in it in general, in general. A cinephile is the opposite, this blocker said. A cinephile is someone who loves the medium, of cinema, who just loves the idea of a movie camera capturing what's in front of it and then someone putting it together into something. And I think by and large you'll see that's true if you actually talk to book lovers and talk to movie lovers. There are very few movie lovers who feel bound to a specific genre. And, you know, obviously I'm kind of both in some ways. I write books. I studied film in college. um, But I had, you know, have no no plans to go into making movies at any point, uh, at the moment at least. Um, But I I, I do think that's true. Like, the reason I'm fascinated by film um, isn't because, like, I like westerns or I like documentaries or whatever, it's because there's something fascinating that happens when you make a movie, right? Like the the camera, a movie camera, whatever else you can say about it, all it does is capture what's in front of it, right? And you can manipulate what's in front of it. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, some movies are manipulated more than others, but there's something very real, if you'll forgive the expression, about what's happening when you watch a movie, right? Like, I think that's why uh, fundamentally even bad movies have their fans, like even people that say, hey, that's a bad movie, they're like, let's watch it, you know? Um, no one wants to read a bad book, you know? No one says, hey, that book's horrible, let's get together and read it, you know? I mean, or it's it's rarer, okay? Um, <laughs> It's a rarer thing to get together to read a bad book. Um, And I, I, I think it's because of the nature of what a film is, right? Like whatever else you say about a movie, it's very obvious that what is happening on the screen in front of you is something that really happened in some sense. Like multiple people got together to create this thing and you're seeing their efforts play out in front of you. And sometimes it's like a brilliant work of art, and sometimes it's one of the most embarrassing fiascos to ever happen, and usually it's somewhere in between. But whatever it is, there's something fundamentally interesting about that, at least to me. Um, Reading a lousy novel is rarely uplifting in the same way that a a lousy movie can be, right? A lousy novel just means someone who didn 't really know what they were doing sat down and wrote some words on a page um, which is can be interesting in some ways but it's I, I don't know it's it's not it's not the same record of reality that a film is it doesn't quite have the same essence of life to it and I do think that what's true of a film in that sense is also true of uh, an audio recording, right? That even a bad album is still a record of an event that really happened and probably sprung from the passions of at least some participants. And that's fundamentally an interesting thing. So. You know, I don't know, maybe go check out Exile on Main Street if you haven't. Um, But whether you do that or not, do check out What You're Gonna Do, the Hulk Hogan podcast. Um, It's clearly not for everyone, (laughs) but it might be for you. Um, Clint was an absolute joy to talk to, and I really appreciated him coming on the show. I wish him well in all his endeavors, uh, including his Hulk Hogan-related endeavors. Anyway, that is it. For this week, um, if you like the show and you like what I'm doing here, um, fostering conversations about the universe, everything, and Hulk Hogan, um, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Um, If you go to patreon.com slash changedmymind, uh, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month If you up it to three or five dollars a month, you start seeing cool stuff like early access to episodes and VIP access to me and my producer. If you don't have any money, uh, taking a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts would be a big help. Give me that five stars. Uh, If you do that, I will read your review live on the air and make you internet famous. Your mom will be so proud. She will. I promise our producer on this show is Tamar Harrington because she is our current only $5 a month supporter. Uh, appreciate, appreciate your support Tamar. We really do. If you want to be a producer on the show, go to the Patreon. You too can be a producer. Change my mind is executive produced by Blake Collier. It is edited by Jonathan Clausen and it is presented by Raven Creek social club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind.